good day and welcome to the Climate Report, broadcasting and podcasting exclusively here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. In local news, it's time to touch on Nevada County's Energy Action Plan as a recent community survey has finally ended. For those that weren't aware, Nevada County has adopted an energy action plan two years ago on February 12, 2019. The Nevada County Board of Supervisors at that point approved the EAP, or Energy Action Plan, as the county's unincorporated areas roadmap for expanding energy efficiency, water efficiency, and renewable energy, and the cost savings that accompany these efforts. The Energy Action Plan for the county was prepared by Sierra Business Council and contains a three-year implementation action plan, which includes some direct assistance from an AmeriCorps Civic Spark Fellow to facilitate program actions through a community working group. While Nevada County's Energy Action Plan does focus on only the unincorporated areas of the county, but in 2015, Nevada City adopted an Energy Action Plan Grass Valley followed suit in 2018, and the town of Truckee also has their own goals regarding renewable energy, greenhouse gas emissions, and just this last summer, July 2020, the town of Truckee released their own climate change adaption plan. Well, some of the questions that were sent out as part of the survey were, how familiar are you with the Nevada County Energy Action Plan? The plan outlines a goal for Nevada County to reduce electricity use by 51%, that microgrid regulations use by 30% by the year 2035. Other questions were, have you ever visited the Nevada County Energy Action Plan website? How likely are you to take advantage of cost savings programs that could reduce your energy use? In your opinion, what are the highest priorities for energy efficiency for your home? What resources would you take advantage of to learn more about how to reduce your energy consumption? The Nevada County Energy Action Plan is considering a host of ways to reach out to Nevada County's citizens, including a webpage, webinars, working with local business associations, the building department, using social media, providing trainings, a resource guide, access to financial assistance programs such as grants, loans, and rebates, networking with experts, and energy consultations and assessments. Well, for those that are here in Nevada County and are looking forward to following through on an energy action plan, please make sure that you stay in touch with MyNevadaCounty.com, where the county government continues to provide updates on their three goals for energy action, which are energy efficiency, renewable energy, and water. In other local news, this out of the Union this week, electric buses are expected to roll into the county. New low-floor, battery-electric, zero-emission buses will be rolling in to Nevada County within two years. The Board of Supervisors on Tuesday approved the purchase of the two 35-foot-long buses, plus a slow charger in the bus yard, and a fast charger to be installed in the ground along one of the routes, allowing the buses to recharge during layovers as they drive through town. Well, according to Transit Services Manager Robin Van Valkenburg, 
The fast charger in town will be embedded in the ground, proposed to be at the Tinloy Transit Center alongside the highway, allowing buses to recharge during their layovers. Van Valkenburg said, it's not a huge charge at the fast charge, but it equates to adding about 10 miles per charge, which helps to ensure that these two buses can run their routes all day long without the need to go back to the bus depot and charge up there. Don't worry, the charging stations in the ground will be low voltage and human friendly. Van Valkenburg said, you're not going to get a shock or have your molars vibrate if you walk across those pads. Van Valkenburg also said that the new low-floor kneeling design with these all-electric buses will help improve boarding time and ease for wheelchair passengers. He said regarding the current buses, you're looking at a five to seven minute process per wheelchair to board them, get them fully secured, and then get the bus on the way. With these new electric low-floor transit buses, that process can be cut down to 60 to 90 seconds per boarding. Well, these purchases of the two electric buses will help meet California Air Resources Board regulations, which would require that all of Nevada County's government fleet purchases to be zero emissions vehicles by the year 2026. Van Valkenburg estimated the buses could come to the county in 18 to 24 months. Well, switching to regional news, and more focused on climate change adaptation, as climate change continues to create hotter temperatures and drier conditions and create more wildfires here in California, the utility companies have been trying to figure out how to adapt. So this is some hot new information about microgrids. A lot of listeners and people here in the Sierra foothills have wondered during these power outages about having smaller localized microgrids that would allow safe areas and safe communities to still be able to have their power on in the midst of larger outages. Well, we'd like to touch on an article here that's out of Green Tech Media. The headline says, California faces big challenges to microgrid plans for wildfires and outages. The idea is sound, but all of the proposed regulations to get microgrids out have been an uphill battle. Slowing down PG&E's interest in switching from mobile diesel generators to cleaner, more cost-effective alternatives by 2021. If you've been following this locally, you know that, for example, for downtown Grass Valley to keep the lights on in the midst of an outage, PG&E actually rolls in giant diesel generators and just runs them nonstop 24-7 to keep substations powered. The challenge now is to try and figure out how to replace those with cleaner versions of backup power. Well, it says here California regulators and utilities want to build microgrids for communities most at threat from the state's deadly wildfires and the widespread grid outages meant to prevent them. But despite policies to fund and enable these microgrids, California is still far from finding effective ways to get them in place for this year's fire season. Even Pacific Gas and Electric the utility most affected by wildfires and fire prevention blackouts is struggling to find solutions to replace the hundreds of megawatts worth 
of mobile diesel generators that it secured to back up Northern California communities facing power outages. Well, last December, the California Public Utilities Commission issued a proposed decision to boost action on these microgrid fronts, earmarking more than a third of a billion dollars for utility clean microgrid proposals for the 2021-2022 timeframe. Well, the CPUC's decision also takes steps toward enabling community and third-party operated microgrids as required under 2018 state law SB 1339. That's different than PG&E owning and operating and keeping the microgrid powered. Community or third-party based ownership. Well, those include expanding the potential for multi-customer microgrids and ordering the state's investor-owned utilities to create microgrid rate plans, or at least standards for sharing the costs and benefits of the services that independent microgrids can provide. Well, even since the deadly paradise campfire of 2018, the CPUC's past two years of efforts to rush microgrid development haven't had the desired effect. PG&E's plan for multiple substation-based microgrids powered by natural gas generators faltered in the face of community opposition and pushback from clean energy advocates. While the state's other two investor-owned utilities continue to be unable to find cost-effective microgrid projects. Well, the CPUC and PGNE have been working with various third-party microgrid vendors and communities to try and break through this impasse. An August CPUC workshop provided sample microgrid solutions from all sorts of different vendors that are proposing to put in fuel cells or put in batteries or put in solar, put in natural gas generators, everyone had their own angle on why their company would be best suited to provide microgrid power. Well, then in November, PG&E issued a request for information seeking non-diesel temporary generation alternatives. 2021 wildfire season. That's right, non-diesel temporary generation. Because as you're picturing what our communities go through during these outages, there is a choice of having having temporary backup or permanent backup. And then you have to make a choice. Is, Is it clean energy or is it dirtier energy? So right now, it's temporary diesel generators. And PG&E's issued a request for information seeking non-diesel temporary generators for this year's wildfire season. But unfortunately, the options for solving PG&E's problems are complicated in three ways, by economic challenges, by technical challenges, and operational challenges. This was all detailed in a report issued last September by the firm hired by PG&E to study the issue. These are the challenges with having clean, cost-effective, substation-based microgrids. Because again, the problem isn't that technically we can't power up the substations, it's 
extremely expensive to do so, it's dirty to do so, and the alternatives all have their own challenges. So here are some of the challenges for us in the local KVMR listening community to trying to get clean substation microgrid backup power. Quinn Nakayama, PG&E's Director of Integrated Grid Planning and Innovation, highlighted the complications during the Grid Innovation Summit in December. Nakayama's discussion talked about both substation microgrids for towns that are actually safe, but they can't get power because their power lines that deliver it to them run through dangerous territories that are shut down. How to power communities on the other side of an outage, as well as microgrids to power communities that are under an outage. Well, one of the key challenges with having a clean energy powered microgrid is that they would have to rely on batteries that can only cost effectively store about four hours of power and would need massive amounts of solar PV to charge them. That would be too expensive for backup power that has to last for up to three days in a row. So according to the PG&E rep, natural gas generators are really the most cost-effective solution. It's as clean as they can get and as affordable as they can get. However, permanent generators for blackouts that only happen a few days per year are a hard sell compared to mobile units that can just be quickly moved from blackout spot to blackout spot as needed. Any long-term installation must earn money the rest of the year when the grid is still running in order to pencil out economically. We've also seen this locally in the renewable energy market for contractors that are offering Tesla power walls and home battery systems for people wanting to make it through outages. They're finding that they're being asked to spend fifteen to twenty or thirty thousand dollars for a battery installation that at most will make the equivalent of about a hundred dollars worth of power that year during outages. So it's the same for the utility companies. You could spend a lot of money to put a permanent natural gas generator near downtown Nevada City and downtown Grass Valley, but it doesn't pencil out economically to provide power for just these brief few days a year. So the challenge then is how to provide value to a substation microgrid that is sitting idle the rest of the year. Well, one option would be to sell that power into the wholesale market. The state's CalISO, the independent system operator, offers payments for what are called resource adequacy services to the wholesale markets. Unfortunately, the areas that PG&E has clearly identified as being the best community targets for microgrids lack transmission lines to deliver this power back to CalISO's network. Finding ways around this constraint without being forced to invest in expensive transmission upgrades will be required in order to making substation microgrids cover their costs over time. Well, despite even all these challenges, natural gas generators 
according to the company that wants to sell them to PG&E, are likely the only reliable substation-based solution available today. Let's run through some of the different options for third-party vendors for microgrids. Microgrids are a constant topic in our area and in our community, and there are a lot of different ways to take care of them. So let's walk through the different companies and their proposals that they gave to the CPUC at the end of last year as to why they should be the ones tasked with keeping communities powered with their technology. So there's Enchanted Rock. They say that their natural gas generators are the only reliable solution available today. And they're also more cost effective to have permanent natural gas generators than mobile diesel generators if, and only if, you can isolate those specific substations for which the problem constantly recurs. If they know exactly which outages constantly happen, putting a permanent natural gas generator there can help. If you can't predict where the outages are going to be, then it's cheaper to just have a whole bunch of mobile diesel generators that you can drive around lickety-split wherever it's needed. So the people selling the natural gas generators are saying theirs are cost-effective because you're not bringing trucks to move them between locations. You're not doing temporary installs every fire season. And he said it's a safer installation because mobile solutions with diesel generators are filled with extra steps. And if you miss one, you can have a safety issue. Well, and to unlock the revenue the rest of the year, when this backup natural gas generator wouldn't be needed, CalISO, they're saying, could decide that simply just providing some power locally is the same as offsetting the demand on their transmission lines. But that's a maybe. The natural gas company is also saying, hey, sometime in the future, we could eventually use renewable natural gas as a zero carbon fuel to power these. Well, then there's Tim Hayde of Scale Microgrid Solutions. Instead of leaving it up to the utility company to still keep the lights on at a substation, what he's saying is that the approach of starting at the substation is wrongheaded. His pitch to the CPUC is at some point, They're going to have to pivot and realize this is going to have to be a distributed solution at every single endpoint of consumption. Well, that might not be as attractive to utilities because installing a substation-based microgrid is something you can recover from ratepayers. Whereas putting solutions at the end of the lines in a distributed way doesn't necessarily have that clear payback through rates. Even so, Scale Microgrid Solutions says that utilities will have to make significant upgrades to all of their distribution network, so they're still going to have to raise rates. Well, then there's Sunrun, the national residential solar installer. Instead of putting just natural gas generators at a substation to keep Grass Valley and Nevada City lights on, instead of focusing on distribution and having everyone have their own backup at every point, Sunrun wants to have a mix of all of that. They proposed a permanent renewable distributed microgrid concept where you have multiple solar storage systems backed up within a community with a location of centralized batteries 
along with fuel cells. So that if those individual distributed backup points don't work, there still is centralized power with batteries and fuel cells. Well, as you can see, there's no shortage of ideas from people that would like to come in and make a buck off of trying to solve this problem. There's also Bloom Energy. They've proposed using their fuel cells at substations and at points throughout the distribution system. And running them 24 hours a day, they say, could defer the costs of upgrading transmission lines and be able to deliver power more efficiently by making it in your neighborhood with fuel cell instead of making it with far-off generators, trucking it down through lines. Bloom, to their credit, has more than 100 microgrids running today, including an installation at Sacramento's Sleep Train Arena, set up last summer to support emergency COVID-19 patient treatment. Bloom also has a fuel cell microgrid at a Santa Rosa manufacturing facility that rode through a five-day wildfire prevention outage in 2019. What all of this means for us is that microgrid regulations and revenue are a work in progress. Finding ways to reward customer-owned microgrids or utility-owned microgrids for their possible service will require new rate plans. And PG&E is working on coming up with new rate plans for microgrids. They're proposing that at the very least, perhaps multiple municipal buildings could be a first step. And being able to show that in communities across California, you can have multiple customers share a grid and how it works could be significant. But the holy grail for microgrid project developers is reliable, consistent revenue. Simply providing a product and a service for a few short number of days a year doesn't provide an opportunity to recover enough money to pay for having it sit idle the rest of the year. So if you're wondering why microgrids are still a challenge here, just know PG&E is looking at it. The utility companies are all looking at it across the state. The CPUC is looking at it. Reports are being issued. Studies are being made. Yes, the technology exists. However, regulations make it challenging to do. Costs make it challenging to do. And there are still just simple operational challenges. So that's your update as far as resiliency in the face of climate change, how we can continue to live here with the quality of life that we have. Yes, microgrids in theory could be a possibility, but just know there are a lot of hurdles still to come. And if any of you are wondering, is this something that we're talking about having to deal with later on this year? This is another quick article talking about how California now has a year-round fire season. This is out of The Guardian. It says powerful winds are sparking new blazes in California's year-round fire season. Warm winter weather and strong gusts have already led to an early start for 2021's fires, following a record-breaking year of blazes in 2020. An unusual warm set of warm and dry conditions coupled with powerful wind gusts last month ignited a spate of winter wildfires that call into question the idea that California has a fire season at all anymore. Residents of several communities in the Santa Cruz Mountains 
were ordered to evacuate by the local sheriff's office. Some of the fires were ignited when power lines were toppled by high winds. Others were wind-driven reignitions of areas that burned in 2020. Well, the evacuations in January came as Californians grappled with the latest example of the reality of climate crisis. Red flag warnings across much of the state in January. The early start to 2021's fires followed 2020's record-breaking year, which saw wildfires that burned approximately 4.26 million acres and killed 33 people. Said Isaac Sanchez, Battalion Chief of Communications for Cal Fire Sacramento, we're not seeing fire season anymore. It's just one big fire year where we can be prepared for and expect a large destructive fire at any point. While it's not unusual for fires to start at any point in the year, what is concerning now with climate change is the warmer, drier weather and receptive vegetation that could allow those winter fire starts to spread. Add in the powerful and dry winds, which in last month's event reached 100 miles per hour near Sacramento overnight, and you have all the ingredients for a fire. Sanchez said the fact that the winds are blowing is not unusual, but what is unusual is the higher temperatures and dry conditions. We're just not seeing enough rain to turn the corner. Well, local utilities have turned off the electricity for tens of thousands of residents for these wildfires, and they did so in January, most of them in Southern California, due to the risk of high Santa Ana winds downing power lines and igniting fires. These so-called public safety power shutoffs are an increasingly common fire prevention tactic for the state's utilities in the wake of the deadly campfire in Paradise, which was started by PG&E's faulty equipment and killed 85 people. Well, Daniel Swain, a climate scientist at UCLA's Institute of the Environment and Sustainability, called the overnight fire starts in January in Northern California nothing short of incredible for that time of the year. He said, as California's wildfire crisis escalated in recent years, I have speculated with climate and fire colleagues that we might start to see wind-driven winter wildfire outbreaks in NorCal. 2021 is empirically demonstrating that answer to that question is yes. Sanchez called on the public to adjust to the new reality of climate change created year-round fire. He said, we don't have a time of year when we're not prepared to aggressively respond, and we need the public to be prepared right there with us, urging homeowners to perform necessary maintenance of defensible spaces and all residents to be prepared for possible evacuations. He closed the article by saying they need to recognize that the fact that it's January doesn't make a difference anymore. Well, that's all for today's climate report. Broadcasting here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. For more news and views in between broadcasts and post-show links to today's news, please look for the Climate Report Facebook page on Facebook.